for those of you who haven't met him. Um, so Will is pastoral chaplain at HTB. As I said, you've been there what oh, quite six years now. Are you on all right? Have you got? Have you got Will? I'm on. We, yeah, he's on. He's okay. on. We got him. Um, and um, we'll also set up a thing called the Mind and Soul Foundation. And um, actually, do you want to tell them what the Mind and Soul Foundation is rather than me kind <laughs> sure. of come up with my best effort? Um, yeah, sure, Jerry. It's great to be here, everyone. Uh, thanks so much for being uh, being here. And I know some people have come specifically out to, to, to talk about mental health. So it's great to have you in the room. And you're so welcome. Um, yeah, I mean, I think... Um, now, 15, nearly 16 years ago, if you'd said to me, or even more than that now, if you'd said I was going to be running a mental health ministry, um, I would have run probably pretty fast away from you. Um, and when I was training for ministry, I was all sort of the sports ministry, the kind of evangelism ministry. And um, I've got a family history of mental health. Um, I remember my grandma used to take to her bed for sort of several days at a time. And uh, everyone would tiptoe around her. And clearly she was struggling with depression. But we used to just, we, we had kind of polite, kind of non-medical language around that, which was kind of, you know, granny's feeling tired or, you know, granny's feeling, you know, a little overwhelmed. And, and granny would drink kind of half a bottle of sherry and take a couple of Ciroc out in the morning and would kind of go to sleep and, and would kind of be out of it for a few days. And, and her... Her depression worked out in quite sort of quite powerful moods, which affected the family. Um, and I remember kind of growing up with that reality, but not really being able to give any word to that. And I could see that anxiety and uh, depression had some foundations in my family, um, and actually probably in me, uh, particularly the anxiety side of things. But I didn't have any vocabulary for it. And then um, in 2005, I was a young curate at Edgware Road. Uh, I was working at St. Mary's Branson Square. And I took my wife to uh, Paddington Station. I just happened to walk back at about 10 past 9 past the Edgeware Road Station. And that's around the time that the, um, the, the bomb went off there. And uh, I put on my dog collar, my clergy shirt, completely green, no idea what I was getting involved in. Um, went under the cordon and got really wrapped up in the emergency service response. Opened a little hall, which turned into the base for the emergency services for the next five or six days. But for that first 24 hours... I was sort of, actually I was in within four cordons, I think, at the end. And I uh, was sort of, I don't know what I was doing. Telling people where the loos were, praying for people, making people tea. That's what vicars are good for. Um, but also, I guess I was absorbing a huge amount of trauma. And I was seeing things that I didn't really want to see. Hearing things I definitely didn't want to hear. And um, secondhand smoke is actually very toxic, but many people don't acknowledge how dangerous it is. Uh, we often leave trauma for people who are in the direct face of trauma but don't acknowledge how secondhand trauma can affect us. Anyway, long and the short of it is I ended up having an anxiety breakdown about three months after the London bombings and signed off work. Um, I subsequently thought I was losing my mind, so I got pretty depressed about that. At the same time, needed medication, which is something I hadn't come across before or didn't really have a, an understanding for how that fit with my Christian faith as a charismatic Christian leader. Um, but what shocked me most of all was the reaction of other Christians towards my anxiety and my subsequent depression. And um, I had two dear leaders working with me at the time. One of them was in the denial space. So he said I was just tired and I just need to go to sleep. And the other one was in this spiritualization space. And he just was trying to cast the devil out of me the whole time. So, which is quite scary when you're struggling with anxiety. 
So what, <laughs> one of them wanted me to go to sleep and the other one wanted to exercise me. And actually, it was a non-Christian GP around the corner who really helped me massively. And it was amazing. He, would, you know, he didn't have a faith at all, but he helped me to understand what's going on for me. And also, he called me out of hours all the time to check I was doing okay. Um, I recovered. Um, I still carry a GAD diagnosis, which is Generalized Anxiety Disorder. But um, I'm relatively, I manage that pretty well these days. Um, but what, what, what I felt was, wow, I felt so stigmatized and so isolated. I thought, if I'm experiencing this as the leader of the church, like one of the leaders, then what are people in the congregation experiencing? And we had a congregation of over a 1,000 people at that time, and I hadn't met a single person with a mental health problem before. And I thought, this is, this is just not right. Like, surely we're either the healthiest congregation in the world, <laughs> or there are a huge amount of Christians out there with mental health problems and no one's talking about them. And so um, a friend of mine from Cambridge, Rob, who um, had become a consultant psychiatrist, we're still really good friends. We decided to club together and started blogging online around mental health and Christian spirituality. That was in 2005. Now we have about 4 million unique hits a year. We have about 10,000 page requests a week, a day, sorry. Um, and uh, we're in 26 different countries and between Rob, Kate, and I, I think we've written about 15 books on the subject. So um, we, we've been doing it for quite a long time now. And um, yeah, the last thing I ever expected, but this is what God sometimes does, you know, out of the ashes of our brokenness. And, and that's, that, if that's what he wants to do, I'm okay with that. And that, that team of Rob, Kate, and you, just to sort of describe your, what you do as a team. <laughs> we're all quite weird. <laughs> um, we, we, we're the sort of, we're like, we're quite three, we're very different. I mean, we are three really unlikely best friends. And um, Rob is, I'm the sort of soft, neurotic-y kind of one. And I love writing and I love words. Rob is really, like, strong and, like, straight-talking. And his mind is something to behold. It's, he is, like, mega mind. He is, like, you know, incredible. And um, so he's a consultant psychiatrist and runs a secure psychiatric unit in, in Scotland. And Kate um, is a psychologist and also a church leader. And she started out in anorexia, bulimia care, but um, she's, she leads a church in Hitchin and also um, uh, does a huge amount of um, psychological coaching and training and, and, and also amazing writing. It was quite funny for her because she's Kate Middleton and, I, and, I, and, I, and I'm Will, so we used to do that skit quite a lot. Of like, hi, I'm Will. This is Kate Middleton. No, not the Kate Middleton, but it worked quite well. Um, so, yeah, the three of us just, we just, and we're co-directors, we have a huge amount of fun together, and we travel a lot, um, doing a lot of coaching in churches, but also increasingly in secular businesses too, trying to bring the light of Christ into places where maybe that's not a part. But also, you know, we, we believe wholeheartedly that we, God has created us mind, body, and spirit, and actually we're looking for a model of psychological recovery which, which, which values the whole person. And, and the spiritual aspect is a very, very important aspect of ourself in terms of mental health recovery. And it's interesting how, how secular psychology recognizes that value, um, and, but they're just not quite sure what to do with it, so we can help them a little bit with that. 
I, I, I can witness to you that Will does uh, value the whole person. We were on a clergy conference back in June uh, for five days, and Will bought his fishing rod and uh, slipped off and pulled a few carp out of the local I pond. Think you did, didn't you? you? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so it's um, yeah, having a well-rounded life is quite yeah, helpful yeah. as well. Yeah, right. But uh, you come before we just open up to questions. You come to us primarily, you would say, as a theologian. Do you just want to say something about that? How you, yeah. yeah, I mean. I- you know, I've done a lot of therapy myself, as in I've received a lot of therapy as well, having done a ton of, of training in, in the area in which I, I work. But my psychotherapist has always wanted me to become a therapist. So he's like, You're, have you thought about therapy yet, Will? <laughs> You'd be a great therapist. <laughs> and, I'm, um, and I'm thinking, you know, and there, there's some sort of draw in that. But, you know, I feel God's really called me specifically to stand in this slightly awkward space. You know, we, we, we live in a very binary world where your training is your qualification is your castle so you know you 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 are isolated in this you are the person in this space and there's someone else in this space and 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 i believe in 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 training and qualification and i believe wholeheartedly in the gifts and strengths of my colleagues but it's interesting to me how again we we hide behind these binary categories of being and so we become totally dependent on these isolated um brilliant singularly functioning experts and i and i believe wholeheartedly that we need to stand in a slightly messier space that actually we need to be multidisciplinary and we need to share gifts skills and understanding from across disciplines and you know my role in our organization having done a, a couple of solid theology degrees i guess um is to help to contextualize psychological tools for a christian audience Effectively, what that means is it help to help to turn psychobabble into th- theological babble. Uh, so to help understand these tracks, but also to to demonstrate how Scripture is alive with great psychology. And actually, Jesus is the is the first great psychologist, and so much particularly cognitive behavioral therapy, but also person-centered therapy, is rooted in ideas that are really very much alive in Scripture. And ultimately, I believe God created us and designed our minds. And so by pressing into his perfect design, we can understand a little bit more about how we can function well in the mind, the body, and in the spirit. And um, what I sometimes find interesting is that I find myself talking a lot about psychology. And Rob and Kate just preach I'm like, hold on a minute. <laughs> like, what are you doing? You're encroaching in my space. They're like, yeah, touche. So we, um, we have quite a lot of banter around it. But I think my role specifically is to help reduce stigma, increase theological understanding, and, and valuing psychological insights but through a, a Christological frame. So how can we understand this as Christians today? And, and, I, and we've come to that in large because... The church for the last 100 years has abdicated the psychological space. Churches were uh, the centers for psychological recovery for, for millennia. And then when the analysts turned up at the turn of the century, the church quickly abdicated the space, largely because they were worried about some really basic tenets of psychology, and particularly um, the idea that, that um, sin wasn't actually some sort of abhorrence to God, but it was an internal construct. Um, and it was something which we could, if you like, remove for a better psychological state. And um, guilt particularly is 
evidenced in different psychological conditions. So the church is very nervous about the idea that Christians or people in general would start thinking that their guilt wasn't a sign of their need for God, but it was a sign of their dysfunctional or broken inner, inner self. Um, so it's partly why I wrote the guilt book, was to help to recognize that there is something called false guilt, which is um, an outworking of depression and, and low mood, but also there's something called real guilt. And there's only one remedy for that, and that's a real savior, that's Jesus Christ. So it's complex, but it is not anti-Christian, and that was what we were trying to do. So we want to bring, and we're seeing the last 15 years particularly, maybe the last eight years, in a supercharged way, churches are transforming the way in which they're viewing an integrated approach to mental well-being, and they're leaning on and collaborating with psychological services, um, as well as teaching really solid um, a biblical understanding of the mind and helping people in their mind, body, and spiritual selves. Brilliant. Well, thank you. Um, well, shall we shall we open yeah, it up to it. the floor? And uh, this is also fraught with um, pastoral difficulties. Doing dangerous. Uh, <laughs> so um, Tom's maybe going to run around with a microphone. Good man. And um, you can ask yeah. any any question. Any question um, is, any is question. open. And we've got we've got, got someone at the back. So do you want to? Great. Do you have them? Because what tends to happen in things like this is that everyone backs up their questions until the last five minutes, and then it's like da 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 da. So just spread them out. Yes, go ahead. What does? How does God respond to suicide? Sorry, how does God respond to suicide? Yeah, great. So it's a great question. In Christian history, um, suicide has often been um, paralleled with the idea of sort of the unforgivable sin. Now, it's not the unforgivable sin. That's an offence to the Holy Spirit. The Suicide, the understanding of suicide was the idea that if you took your own life by suicide, that you couldn't repent of your suicide because you died. Therefore, your unrepented sin would lead you to face the judgment and wrath of God. And it was deemed to be abhorrent because it was a sin against the body. So it's a sin against the created self. But actually, interpretively, that's quite misplaced. I mean, it's a sad circumstance because... Um, people who died by, by suicide until very recently, until the 1960s, were actually buried outside of um, the graveyards of the churches as a sign of their non-inclusion, which you can imagine the impact of that on family members. The scripture is really clear about suicide in many ways, that God treats suicide in a very different way to the way we anticipate um, Elijah demonstrates what we call suicidal ideation. So he, 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 he desires to, to die by suicide. Uh, and he says to the Lord in 1 Kings, take my life, Lord. I've had enough. He's running away from Jezebel. And you think if, the, if, God was, if God found suicide abhorrent, God would have critiqued Elijah for requiring to die by suicide. But instead, God treats him in this amazing biopsychosocial spiritual way. So what he does is he causes him to sleep in the first instance. Uh, then he feeds him. Then he causes him to sleep again. And then he invites him to move into a different space. He says, leave this place. And he says, this journey is too hard for you. So he empathizes with him. Interestingly, if you, if you were to um, find yourself in a secure psychiatric unit, you would often be given a bucket of KFC as the first thing that happens to you. Because often people who are experiencing um, acute uh, psychological distress or, or psychotic episode haven't eaten for several days. 
and their psychosis is, is maximized by, their lack of, by the lack of nutrition. So they're often fed first, and then they're given sleeping pills to help them to sleep for a significant amount of time before any psychological work is done. Now, I think it's, it's amazing that God treats Elijah in that way, in this loving and inclusive way. That there are very little other um, references to suicide other than Judas in the New Testament. And even Judas's death is, is, is framed in pity rather than in judgment. And my encouragement, if you like, to the church is to stop talking about people committing suicide, which isn't actually um, positive language. We use the word commit because it used to be illegal to commit suicide and therefore it was classified as a crime. Um, now we talk about people dying by suicide um, and we want to recognize that we will, we, many of us will die when we've just committed a sin of different types. But the grace and love of God reaches well beyond our last confession. Um, I was thinking about my own children. If one of my kids really messed up and then you know, I wasn't there f- for, me to, for them to say to me, Dad, will you forgive me? Of course, it might extend my forgiveness beyond their ability to ask for forgiveness. And God extends his forgiveness well beyond our ability to ask for his forgiveness if we're his children. So our approach to suicide is, is 100% compassion. I always say to people, no, no one in their right mind would take their own life. So suicide is the ultimate demonstration of the symptom of mental ill health. And people who die by suicide are often judged as if they're making a decision in their, own right, in their own mind, in their right mind. And actually that isn't fair and that isn't true. So suicide, if you like, it's great to start at the very hard end of mental health. But my encouragement is to tr- treat people who, treat the families of people who've died by suicide with the deepest compassion. Because it is the deepest and most painful of griefs. To treat people who express suicidal ideation with deep compassion and without judgment. Actually, probably 15 or 20% of this room uh, are people who have at some point or other thought about taking their own life. Um, Young people might have thought this and felt deep shame about that. Thinking about suicide is not a precursor to taking your own life by suicide and it's not something to become afraid of. We always ask the key questions about whether someone has made a plan uh, and whether they have a sort of a determined view and um, or if they've taken any steps in the past. And we always say if someone has made a plan and if they've taken steps in the past or if they have planned to make steps, then to seek help straight away. But it's actually quite human to stand on the, um, on, on the tube and imagine what it would be like to step over the yellow line. Some of us who are a little anxious tend to stand quite far back against the wall just to stop ourselves from having those thoughts quite as powerfully as we might. But, but it's all compassion. And what we do know about suicide is if you talk about suicide, suicide is a less greater risk. Um, there is some mythology that if you start talking about suicide, you put ideas in people's minds and somehow that they might act on those ideas. That is not true. What we know is true about suicide is that talking about suicide helps people who are struggling with the emotional distress around suicide to get the help that they need. So there's a little introduction, but in scripture, I see 
very little of the condemnation that we uh, often believe is present in the church. Another question? Yeah, I've got a quote. Uh, this one here? Do we take this one? Then we've got one over here. Where does Christianity stand on the roots of mental diseases such as schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder? So, um, mental health, for those who might wonder about the placement of those particular illnesses, it, it, it is roughly divided into two core categories. Neurotic illness, which includes depression and anxiety and obsessive-compulsive disorder and um, some eating disorders, that kind of range of illness, and, and the other side, which is what we call serious and enduring, which are issues like schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, some bipolar disorders, psychotic disorder, delusional disorder, and the like. Now, those two sets of disorders are separate from one another, but there is sometimes overlap as well, so there's a little grey area in the middle. Um, the church historically has not been great at either area, but it's been particularly bad at supporting people with schizoaffective disorder, schizophrenia, and disorders of the mind which are more apparent in terms of the physical outworking or the emotional outworking of the person in the community. And, and historically, that's meant that people have made the assumption that people, for example, with schizophrenia are actually people who demonized. And this has been a huge pain for people with serious and injuring mental health issues because they've actually found that their experience in church has exacerbated their sense of stigma and otherness in life. And so it's become an incredibly painful place for them uh, to be. I like to read scripture for what it's actually worth. And if the Bible says to me that Jesus cast out evil spirits or if he cast out demons, I believe that's actually what he was doing. What I don't believe is that Jesus was treating people for schizophrenia. So what Christians tend to do is they do they interpolate their view of what's happening because of the symptoms that they see onto scripture and say, ah, this is what it looks like. Actually, the demonstrations, if you like, of demon possession are not similar in type to the sort of demonstrations of, uh, of experience for someone who has schizoaffective disorder or schizophrenia. Those disorders are often measured by what they're called their flat effect rather than their active effect. There's a few um, eminent psychologists in the room, so I have to be quite careful about what I'm saying here. But um, they're often measured by the flat effects more than they are the active effects. Now, the active effects might be things like hallucinations and delusions, but flat effects can be a lack of self-care, there can be disorders in sleep or a flatness of mood or a bluntness of emotion. And so those things aren't what you'd see Jesus treating, if you like, in the first century. Instead, we see Jesus actively treating demonic issues for they are demonic issues. And what's happened historically is that Christians have seen those demonic issues and goes, oh, that must be first century schizophrenia. There's only one diagnosis in scripture which has relevance today, and that's, and that's leprosy. That's the only disease which is, if you like, given a um, medical name, a medical terminology, which is still relevant uh, in our world today. So these disorders, the serious and enduring category, are well controlled today, largely through excellent medication and huge developments in medication, and also huge steps forward in uh, terms of the sort of therapies available. People will still say, oh, but is the, is the, is the devil still at work in, in those disorders? Well, Rob, who runs a secure psychiatric unit, which is largely made up with people who have these quite hard end, extreme end of the serious and enduring matrix, he would say that you might have a hundred clients who 
um, might have delusions saying that they're Jesus or, 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 or God. Um, and yet 99 of them will just have a neurological condition. But there's, of course, still space for the devil to be at work in our bodies and minds, and which is true for physical illness too. What we would say is you can't medicate demons. So you can't give um, a demon some olanzapine and then he suddenly calms down and suddenly is really relaxed and polite. So if, you, if, if someone has uh, a serious injuring condition, for example, schizophrenia, and they are not treatment resistant, it's clearly a biomedical psychological disorder, not a supernatural manifestation of demon possession, for example. And praise God, the vast majority of those conditions are well treated medically, which is a sign that actually this is an illness in the same ways that diabetes might be an illness. What we still find is largely because of Hollywood rather than the church, people with serious and enduring mental health issues still find themselves stigmatized. And we have to work really hard together to make sure that they're included. Part of that stigma is the idea that people with serious and enduring mental health issues are dangerous. But actually, people with serious and enduring mental health conditions are far more likely to be assaulted by other people than we are. And they're far more likely to be victims of assault than they are to be protagonists in any assault. So just recognize the impact on their lives, not only of their disorder, but also the way in which stigma and their own vulnerability can impact them. And I hope that we can be inclusive and welcoming places for people who carry those kind of disorders. Another question? There's a lovely lady over here. Thanks, Tom. Hi there. Hi there. Um, yeah, I work with 16 to 19-year-olds at an FE college. Um, the focus is typically on the extreme ends of mental health when we're talking to the students. Mm. I'm rather more interested in how, uh, as a professional, we can positively input kind of almost before it gets to that stage because I feel it's just leapt into at the extreme end and there are students with different needs, perhaps. Does that make sense? Um, so how can we intervene earlier than waiting until... Yeah people are in, a, in yes. a very bad place. Yeah, I mean, look, this is the holy grail, if you like, of um, the way in which uh, psychological services are now wanting to work. Because what we recognize is that it's much easier to help someone to stay well than it is to help them get out of significant illness into wellness. In, we have to be quite careful about this idea of mental health epidemic, by the way. I think the newspapers are really keen to paint a mental health epidemic picture across the UK. Actually, in terms of serious and enduring dis disorders, the numbers of serious and enduring disorders have remained pretty static. There hasn't been a significant upswing in those at all. The only caveat to that is the appearance of synthetic drugs like spice, which have some psychoaffective uh, impact, and we're seeing that a lot in prisons, uh, and some sorts of skunk cannabis, which have the same sort of um, psychoaffective impact, and that produces... Um, psychotic disorders but, but in the large that's a category that's remained relatively level in the main and the plain depression anxiety is a mixed disorder makes up 6.1% of diagnosis so that's by far and away the largest diagnostic category and it's relatively static 
But at the beginnings and ends of life, that's where we're seeing a serious upswing. So amongst elderly people, we're seeing an upswing in mental health disorder. But that could be because they're living much longer and because of the onset of issues like dementia, which we're seeing a lot more prevalence. And then amongst younger people. And um, Manchester was dubbed the um, self-harm capital of Europe recently. And what we're seeing is uh, UK has the highest numbers of self-harm in under-21s. And um, in, in the UK has the highest number of uh, self-harms under 21. And we are seeing epidemic impact of mental health issues amongst younger people. So we're talking directly to you young people here. Um, impacting young people positively is, is, a, is a huge challenge. We, you, can talk about in, you can talk about the various changes in society which are affecting young people. Um, you can talk about the breakdown of the family, the, the, the traditional family unit as being an impact. Um, you can talk about, um, you know, social cohesion as an impact. But the, the one elephant in the room invariably is going to be uh, the technological revolution. So uh, the industrial revolution gave way to a huge upswing in mental health issues. Um, and the technological revolution is also giving way to quite a big upswing in um, mental health issues. The trouble is, if you tell young people that your devices or your interest in social media is affecting your mental health badly, it sounds patronising, I sound super old, I sound just like my parents were to me about rock bands, and you're thinking, why would I pay any attention to this person? Because ultimately, technology is the lifeblood of young people. I mean, it's the new dimension. I'm less interested in technology as, as a thing. What I'm more interested in is the way in which natural boundary limitations have been broken by technology. So in the old days, the really old days, when it got dark, you went to bed, because that was it. Then they invented the light bulb, and then suddenly you could stay up longer than maybe you should stay up, because actually we had the technology to enable you to stay up and work longer. So that's a problem, because our natural boundary had been overcome. Then they invented the post. So a guy gets on a horse, he writes a note on a, on a kind of piece of chalk, on a piece of chalk on a, on a piece of slate, and then rides to the next town. That might take a week, and then you get your news, and then you start doing the work that he said. Then they invented the postman with a letter. That got quicker. Then they invented the email. Then it became instant. So a boundary became overcome, so you couldn't wait anymore. You don't need to wait anymore. And then they developed a community online where you could have a lot of fun at 3 o'clock in the morning on a WhatsApp group. And then suddenly there's no point going to bed at all. And then you add in a few nasty people on there who are telling you that you're a bit of an idiot at 3 o'clock in the morning and then you wonder why you can't get to sleep anymore. So what's interesting about this is around looking again about how God has created us and how he's created the world around us and how he's created us with natural limitation. I think because of PET scans and neuroimaging now, we're learning much more about how the brain develops and how the brain operates. One of the interesting developments of the last sort of three years has been this understanding of the brain as a cleaning itself in REM sleep, the idea that the brain opens itself in deep sleep and actually the fluid around the brain removes sedimentary deposits and you know all sorts of impurities and actually the brain at deep rest becomes is cleansed in its own right which i think is a remarkable idea if you then take away REM sleep and then you look at the psychological impact of that or even the physiological impact of that that's surely going to be negative and i think we need to be really careful about being old, old and a kind of prohibitive around technology. I don't think it's going to get the message through and I don't think it's going to help any young people. 
But I do think by educating young people about how, what, they, what their bodies need and what their brains need is a good way of doing some work about how we can actually find balance. If there is no natural limitation, we have to enforce limitation for ourselves. So it's all about that positive self-care message. There's obviously other things we could talk about, like the way in which body image is being influenced by media and how negative that is. Um, we could talk a lot about you know, all of those kind of social pressures and how they often lead to comparison, self-loathing, the growth of the cosmetics industry in this country, particularly the um, permanent cosmetic industry, and, and how that's affecting young women, but also increasingly young men too. And um, all of those pressures, without positive supports, are having a negative impact on young people. And I think they are propagating a self-harm culture, but they're also causing a huge amount of emotional distress amongst young people too. And I think the only way we're going to find a way through is by talking about how each, of, each person is uniquely created and made. They're loved by God. They have belonging. They belong to God. They belong in community. And how can we restore self-esteem we can do that by restoring people's dignity, their sense of identity, and their sense of belonging. And I think you know, that's what our world is looking for, and the church has the answer to that. Tom, one on the uh, phone. We've got someone speaking of the technical revolution. We have one for, uh, coming in on the text that says, how do you know who to open up to? Is it church leader, connect group leader, friends? Who do you open up to? So... Me and Rob wrote a book this past February that came out called The Power of Belonging. And in 1995, there's a study by a couple of great psychologists called Baumeister and Leary, and they opened up this idea of belongingness, that we all carry this value, this belongingness value within us. Now, it's not revolutionary because we all know that God's created us as children of his to belong. Um, and, and, and really, we look at the idea that you have a priorized value of belongingness. You belong to God, and then you belong in community. And that kind of cruciform shape of experiencing life is actually there to help us and to mold us and, and towards one another. Um, and within that, obviously, a lot of strengths within community, how we can open up and therefore you know, be vulnerable um, is a great way in which we can improve our mental health. I want to be quite careful about this idea of improving mental health because... I want to just encourage us all to recognize that we will all struggle with our mental health, whether we have a diagnosis or not, at some point in our lives. That mental health is as normal as physical health is, and it's not something we should be afraid of or ashamed of, but something we need to collaborate together to support. We know that community positively affects your mental health. In fact, more than that, we know that Christian spirituality is good for your mental health. We know some secure mental health units that close on a Sunday, some day uh, units and actually send their members to church communities, even though they haven't got a faith. They just say, go to the church, it's good for your mind, um, which is great. <laughs> That's good news. But how do we, in our community, share appropriately and vulnerably? In a chapter we wrote in the book about belongingness was the idea that oversharing is not actually vulnerability. It's another form of armor. It's another form of defense. And oversharing as a way of manipulating people towards you, but not really sharing things that you're really vulnerable about. You know, you're just manipulating people in a way with your oversharing. So be cautious of that in church. But I, I would say find two or three people who you can trust and spend time building with them vulnerably in advance of your mental health issue. The trouble is that when we're really isolated and then we become ill, it's very hard to, from that point, build good relationship. 
But actually, when we live in good relationship, it's very easy to know who to trust. If you're not in a prayer group or in a, do you have connect groups or home connect groups? That is a great place to start right now. You know, we think about health insurance schemes for our physical health. A mental health insurance scheme might be joining a great connect group at this church and spending time building relationship with people to the point at which you could say, if I had a mental health crisis today, I would know exactly who I needed to call. If you do the work in advance, you, you can be sure that you're in a good place when something difficult happens. If you wait till you have a difficult time with your mental health to find that person to trust, two things could have happened. One is your isolation could be a part of the reason why you've got into a place of mental health crisis. The other thing you could know is that now you're in a place of mental health crisis, it's fine to find, it's hard to find a way out without a good guide, but you're not quite sure who a good guide is. Now, I, I caveat that with this very important statement. If you are concerned about your well-being at any time, you should go and see your GP at the first instance or walk into an A&E and ask for help. So if you have any concerns about your safety or well-being from a mental health perspective, I want to encourage you to see a mental health professional immediately. Don't wait. And many of us will be stewing here thinking, oh my goodness, you know, that sounds like a big step. It's just a really important step to take. So if you're concerned about your well-being, about your safety or the well-being and safety of someone else, it's see your GP or walk into an AE clinic ASAP. If you're concerned that you are on a downward spiral, I would start with my GP. And you can always book a double appointment. Some people here will be thinking, oh, but 10 minutes will be definitely not enough for me to talk through my mental health crisis. And your GP will understand that too. That's why booking a double appointment and asking the receptionist to book you a double appointment because you have a mental health concern, that will massively help. Okay? I would recommend that you look to the pastors of the church, talk to Jerry, talk to members of the team here, to say, if you get a diagnosis, say, Jerry, I've been to see the doctor. He said, I'm struggling with this. I just wanted you to know, as my pastor, is there anything you know, that the church can do? How can, how can I continue to grow together? And then I'd say, share securely, but share. Don't go around telling everyone what is wrong with you. Okay, That's the kind of oversharing bit that actually ultimately doesn't help your recovery. It just becomes... A kind of, it can become an identity. You'll be saying, but you've just done that, Will. <laughs> yeah, I have. I just told everyone that I struggle with a GAD diagnosis. But I'm doing that to help you guys, just wanting to be vulnerable. But for you personally, I'd say, you know, talk to two or three good friends about what you're struggling with, but don't kind of cast the net and let it become an identity issue. Just say, look, this is what I'm struggling with. And invite your friends to hold you accountable to you, to kind of taking healthy steps for your well-being. Because then they can say, hey, you know, why are you like up in the middle of the night on WhatsApp? You should be getting a good night's sleep. That would be good for you. Or, hey, let me bring around a meal and just kind of give you some encouragement. Or, do you not want to be on your own at the moment? I'd love to come and sit with you and watch some TV. So, encouragement, friendship, it's all good. We, is there another... Uh, do we have more on the, on the phone? Do you want to have one more from the text? And then maybe one more from the floor. And then we ought to, we ought to wrap up. How do you respond to a friend when their reasoning for not being able to believe in God or Jesus is that God can't be good if he won't cure my depression? That's a great question. I mean, it's, that's the question of suffering, you know, that so many people are asking, not just about uh, depression, but about all sorts of tragedies and traumas in the world. And, 
you know, if I could answer the question of suffering, I probably wouldn't be a mental health person. I would probably be a theologian who's leading, you know, the, the kind of Lambeth at some point or other. So I'm not going to pretend I'm going to be able to answer the suffering question. What, what I would say is that there are specific challenges for people who are struggling with mental health issues with regard to their spirituality, particularly actually those who are struggling with a depressive disorder. There's something within depression which actually flattens your emotion. And um, some people describe it as the peace that you can the peace within which you can feel emotion and, and the peace within which your brain with which you can sense God shuts down during depression. And and lots of people like I, I support uh, through the Minor Soul Foundation, say things like, you know, I used to feel like the presence of God, but since I've been depressed, I just don't feel anything. They might also say, I don't actually feel the love of my family anymore. I know they love me, but I can't feel love. I just feel blank. That feeling of blankness is really hard. And again, if, you, if you're here and you've been depressed or you are depressed, I want to encourage you, I want to encourage you to know that God loves you, that the church loves you. And I want to encourage you that as your depression lifts, your feelings will be restored to you. But it's a very, very difficult position to be in. And it can mean that as far as engaging with God is concerned, that experiential bit that we kind of lean on as charismatic Christians is actually very, very far from them and very hard to reach. And it can be helpful to know that there is actually a psychological um, reaction or, or manifestation within depression which actually has that impact because, because then we can be a little bit more um, supportive and understanding towards someone who we may be wanting to talk to about faith but are in that place of depression. We would say as Christians, hey, I know you're depressed and that's really hard but I know God loves you and I think that knowing Jesus would help you. And they might be saying, well, that's really nice, but I just don't feel like I can feel God in any way. If you can then say, oh, yeah, I know that depression has that impact on people, but that doesn't mean God doesn't love you, even if you can't feel that love right now. That can be a helpful and comforting way of helping someone move forward in faith. It is difficult. The scripture is full of people who are depressed. And yet, so many of those people have done, did so many incredible things. I mean, our whole church is really alive with people who struggle with depression and yet serve God in a remarkable way. Like Charles Spurgeon, the best preacher this country has ever known. He was depressed for 20 years. And his ministry is born out of depression. I mean, he literally was depressed, the darkest sort of depression, and then he preached the most fabulous, life-changing, world-changing sermons. Florence Nightingale was in the serious enduring category. She had um, bipolar disorder, and she would often have quite manic episodes. And yet she was there caring for all of these sick and infirmed people morning, noon, and night. Mother Teresa, you know, she was depressed for more than 20 years. And she used to write these incredible letters to her spiritual advisors saying, you know, what's happening? Like, why can't I kind of get free of this depression? Sadly, they wrote back to her and told her that God had caused her depression to keep her humble because of the success that she was experiencing on the streets of Calcutta. It's completely misplaced. But as a result, she didn't receive any remedial assistance or any psychological support to get over her depression at all. William Cooper, who wrote the Olney Hymns, that's the kind of greatest hymnal, I think, that we have in this country. He wrote, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood, because he, 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 he actually tried to take his own life in the bath. And then he was fished out of the bath by John Newton, 
the slaver who wrote Amazing Grace. And then he wrote, there is a fountain filled with blood, as a sign that he was thankful for the rescue that God had offered him through the love of his brother John Newton. And together they continued worshipping and, and, and activating worship across the church in the UK. And then there's, um, there's uh, John Bunyan who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, which is really a story of the inner workings of his mind. It's not really about Pilgrim at all. And he wrote a book before, which he wrote in prison, about his absolutely crippling obsessive compulsive disorders when he was assailed by these intrusive thoughts that would overwhelm him and make him feel filthy and guilty and wretched and 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 so all of these leaders including Martin, Martin Luther who's the father of the reformation for which we're thankful because otherwise we would all be we wouldn't we wouldn't be anglicans i should say um you know he he threw his pen pot paint his pen his ink pot at the devil um because he was struggling with a delusion and he was often depressed and he also struggled with obsessive compulsive disorder so there's a few people and there's the archbishop of canterbury who recently told everyone that he was also on citalopram and um and 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 so just to give you a little flavor for how our church is built on the shoulders of men and women who struggle with mental health issues you don't need to get fixed to be a servant of Christ and you don't need to get well uh, before you can get useful in the kingdom of God um, that's good news uh, we've, got, we've, got one, we've got one more from the floor just yeah last, last one here and then and then we we, we want to leave a, a moment Sorry. to pray um, and just just to minister to you so yeah hi hi I just wondered um, in relation to what you just said um, how much would you say Jesus wants to keep people where they are with, you know, and how, because I feel as someone myself, you know, who's had mental health issues, um, it's, you sometimes question, oh, does Jesus want to take me forward out of this or does he want to leave me where I am? In a way that it sounds a bit irrational, but given what you just said, you know, is it a question of, oh, he knows better and, you know, because that, that sometimes, the, although it's good news, obviously, that, that you can be a servant of Christ, whatever your circumstances, whatever your mental health is like, um, I feel, you know, sometimes the thought can be, oh, well, if you are someone suffering mental health problems, is that, is it going to be, you know, how much does Jesus want you to, to come out of that? And how much does, and, you know, in terms of like, Obviously, how much is it a, a gradual thing, and and just questions like that? Yeah, is it is sure. what's the approach we should have? Yeah, yeah. Like what what should we? What would you say in relation to that? I mean, so, I don't believe Jesus wants us to be where we are, if you like, in the struggle, because Jesus has come to set us free, and ultimately, you know, John ten ten is the sun sets you free. You know, you'll be free indeed. And there's, a, there's, a, there's freedom. I've come to give you life and life in all its fullness, he says in John 10, 10. You know, that, that, that actually we've become, we've, you know, he wants to set us free to that, for that life. But when I, when, when I pray for people who are paralyzed, uh, you know, I, I said, well, Jesus doesn't want them to be where they are, but yet Jesus still will use them where they are. And, and, and that's the approach I take with mental health issues. That I, you know, ultimately, I believe that in Jesus' compassion, Jesus wants to set us free. And ultimately, the gospel story, if you don't know it, is the story of our belonging. It's the story of the restoration of our belonging. And that ultimately, heaven is a place where there'll be no more mental health issues. Um, it'll be a place where there's no more weeping and gnashing of teeth. But whilst we're here in the body, Jesus will will walk with us in our struggles and he will 
demonstrate his, his redemptive power in our struggles. And, and I find that a great comfort. I would say to Jesus, Jesus, if you're not going to completely heal me of my anxiety, then use my anxiety in a redemptive way for your glory. And there's health in that. I, I think there isn't health if we say, well, Jesus wants me to be ill. I don't think that's the right way of framing it. I would say Jesus wants us to be well. And Jesus' expression in scripture is always, do you want to be well? And he says to be, you know, do you want to be well? Do you want to be well? Then get up and walk. And, and what, what I noticed with, with the saints is they often get up and walk, but sometimes they walk with a limp and that's okay. Like John Wimber said, never trust a leader who doesn't walk with a limp. I think that's good advice. Paul was in the body and yet he prayed three times and yet the Lord didn't take away his thorn and yet he didn't stop walking. He just walked with a thorn, which is pretty painful. And so my encouragement is to, is to acknowledge that Jesus doesn't want us to be sick, but Jesus will redeem our struggle for his glory whilst we're here in the body. And I think that redemption story is a powerful story. You know, I, I, you know, I had a massive anxiety breakdown. I'm thinking this is the end of my ministry. I'm a complete crap heap. Like, what's the future hold for me? And honestly, if you gave me a red button to press, that I would go back and not go through that again, I would not press it. Because ultimately, whilst this is a painful story, God's redeemed the story and God continues to redeem the story. And praise God, we've been able to have an incredible impact on the conversation around mental health and across the UK, which is, which is not, not, it's like Jesus went, oh no, I'm going to get Will Van Hart to fall over really hard. And then, and then we're going to use, it's just that he, he just does his work through, through us. And there's joy in that redemption song. And I just would encourage anyone here who's struggling not to, not to make an idol out of their healing, but to make an idol out of Christ. You know, don't let healing be your idol. Idolize Jesus. Be like Jesus. I want to worship you with my whole life. I want to, I want to bend my life towards you. And, and, and in my dysfunction, in my struggle, uh, I'm just going to lean towards you. And if that, if I got a limp, if I got a crawl in order to serve you, then that's what I'm going to do. Um, lots of people look at me and I, some of those people have been pretty aggressive at conferences where there's a big crowd. They kind of come up to me afterwards and they go, you're healed. Why don't you claim your healing in Jesus name? You know, you're clearly healed. Like no one could talk to this number of people and like be as confident as you sound and still have an anxiety problem. You know, you're, you're misrepresenting Jesus. And people say that stuff to me. I'm like, wow, you are not, not in my head at all. You are so not in my head right now. You now, I, I feel like I've dropped my keys down the drain at least once a day. I have, and my brain does all sorts of crazy things. And I get weird feelings of dread at different points in the day for no reason whatsoever. Um, and that's my reality. But that's okay. It's not, not painful. It's just okay in the scheme of the fact that I just believe that Jesus is with me and he is walking alongside me and if he's with me and he's walking alongside me then I think it's going to be okay so um, don't get addicted to the end of the story just keep living in the present moment knowing that Jesus is beside you and 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 Jesus often comes alongside us and in the bodies of others and don't be ashamed or afraid to share your story with those around you who know and love him because they'll bring a little bit of his presence into your life and they'll offer you incredible comfort well this has been hugely hugely helpful I, I, i've had a great time sitting here i hope you've had a great time should we show our appreciation oh. to you? Thanks, um 
I thought it'd be great if we could just end with a, a time and invite the band back up and we'll just have a time just to wait on God and ask him to minister to us a final time. And if you would like to be prayed for, we have a prayer team here and 